you weren't here last week, we covered um, <clears throat> an introduction to the holiness of God. We looked at uh, a definition for personal holiness. We looked at uh, how holiness is God's command to us and his purpose for us. And then we looked a little bit at the transcendent majesty of God. Uh, and we said that pers- the pursuit of personal holiness has to begin with awareness of who God is in his transcendent blazing kind of majesty and then our personal holiness is built on top of that in, and in response to that and done in light of that. Now this morning we're going to get to week number two which is union with Christ and holiness. <clears throat> Let me frame it a little bit like this. So Jesus says in John 15 that our relationship with him is a little bit like the branches and the vine that it's a living organic relationship and we are dependent upon him as the as the source of life to sustain us the apostle paul in first corinthians 12 talks about our relationship with christ as like a uh, as the most intimate of human relationships a marriage ephesians chapter 5 that we are uh, (coughs) we are united together in such a way that two become one if you like that we are our identity now is it's not just me, it's we, okay? And then he changes up the metaphor in First Corinthians 12, and he talks about our relationship with Jesus being like the body and a head, and that we need a vital connection with the head in order to be living and alive. So you can amputate an arm or a leg, painful as it is, and still live, but if you get decapitated, that's the end of you, all right? The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about our relationship with Christ as being we are together as as the church, living stones being built together on a cornerstone, on on a foundation of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the most essential part of the building. He's the the foundation stone, the stone that everything else is aligned to and built upon. So there's all these different images in the New Testament about this important doctrine of the union of with of our union with Christ <clears throat> and it's a really important topic but it doesn't get a lot of airtime, if you like in terms of it being specifically talked about it's often referenced in various uh, places but uh, what I want to do is kind of zone in on this doctrine and see its implications and effects for us as we think about holiness because when you become a Christian it's not simply that you uh, believe certain truths or that you have to behave in a certain way but it is a life of faith isn't it it's a life of faith we are grafted into the very life of God and he joins himself to us and we enter into the fellowship of the triune God Father Son and Spirit we join into that and in coming into that relationship we receive everything that we need for life and godliness peter says second peter three uh second peter one verse three so i want to talk about union with christ now there's a couple of quotes on your outline that hopefully will whet your appetite to think oh this is worth the hour that i'm giving it this morning so john piper says to be in christ to enjoy union with christ when this is fully understood nothing is greater experientially and nothing is greater theologically You cannot experience anything greater than fullness of union with Christ and nothing reaches higher in theology and nothing is more theologically comprehensive than the fullness of union with Christ. Then Sinclair Ferguson, who's my favourite Scot, uh, he says, of all the doctrines surrounding the Christian life, 
This one, this union with Christ is one of the profoundest and is also one of the most practical in its effects. So hopefully you're excited. Let's pray and ask God to meet us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning that we get the opportunity to be together again. We thank you for the sunshine. Uh, more importantly, we thank you for your son who has made it possible for us to draw near to you. We ask that as we set aside this hour to study this topic together, that you would be with us. You meet us by your Holy Spirit. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, and that what we hear about and learn and take into our minds this morning would make that jump the 18 inches between our heads and our hearts so that it actually changes us and makes us uh, more like Jesus as a result of what we hear. So we ask for your help now in his precious name. Amen. 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 So if you, if you were to turn in your Bibles to somewhere like Ephesians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5 or Romans 16, you will hear Paul often reference that the gospel... Is, uh, is a mystery. It's a little bit of a mystery. And uh, <clears throat> union with Christ kind of falls into that same category of being a mystery because it's something that we can't completely comprehend, uh, but it's something that we really want to understand. Okay. And so explaining a mystery is a little bit like having to explain a joke. If you do it, you ruin it. And so I feel a little bit like in, in doing this this morning, I'm gonna, we're not going to do it justice, but I hope we can at least uh, scratch the surface. So I just want you to be aware of the tension. It, this is, we're, we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here. And so I, I don't propose to have it all uh, nailed down, which is why I like John Calvin. He has wise words for us uh, on our union with Christ. He says, for my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery and I am not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. Whatever is spiritual is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. And that's my hope this morning, that rather than just come away with our heads full of ideas and information, that our hearts would actually feel the benefit of union with Christ. <clears throat> The fact that we can't completely understand it all and grasp it all doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, attempt some study. You know, if you, just because you can't touch the bottom of the ocean doesn't mean it isn't worth taking a boat trip over the ocean. Still worth it. So let's, uh, so what I want to do is, I, you'll notice in your, in your outline, we're going to look at union with Christ in two different ways. One as a speedboat trip and one as a kind of a glass bottom boat trip. So we're going to do the speedboat trip first and then the glass bottom boat trip. And I must say, just want to say, uh, this, this book, Union with Christ, the guy called Rankin Wilborn, interesting name, is, I think, a, a brilliant introduction to this whole topic. It's extremely accessible. If you wanted to read something else on, on this topic, this is a great book. Uh, and he is, uh, he's a pastor, or was a pastor, I think, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, but excellent, very accessible. Uh, and a couple of, a few other book recommendations, just in case you're asking. These are my favorite ones on the whole topic of holiness. So that's Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. Excellent. This is the one I mentioned last week, probably my favorite one, Holiness, J.C. Ryle. Uh, if you can get through the Victorian language, that'll be, that'll bless your socks off. Uh, <coughs> uh, classic Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, again, a really 
solid, excellent, accessible uh, book on holiness. And then uh, again, my, my favorite Scotsman, Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote, he wrote this one called Devoted to God, which I think is a, a fantastic again. So they're all similar, they're all from the same stable, but they will uh, t just have different approaches to it. So they're all my recommendations. All right, <coughs> what is union with Christ? The speedboat trip. Okay, so Wayne Grudem defines union with Christ as the relationship between believers and Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. And that's drawn from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to describe those, redemption, uh, forgiveness of sins, adoption, election, uh, uh, all sorts of wonderful things, all done for the praise of God's glory. But that opening sentence, at the, uh, verse 3, at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, says, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Everything that we have comes because we are in Christ. And Kevin DeYoung says, Union with Christ is not a single specific blessing we receive in salvation. Rather, it is the best phrase to describe all the blessings of salvation whether in eternity past, like election, or in history, like redemption, or in the present, which is, could be effectual calling, justification, sanctification, or in the future, glorification. All the blessings that we experience come because and in and through Jesus Christ. Now, there are two components to union with Christ in the New Testament. First component is the Bible will speak about how we are in Christ, that Whatever Jesus has done, whatever he has accomplished, God counts that as being something that we did or we accomplished. We are found in him. And then the second component is that he is in us, that Christ is in us. Not merely that his ideas or his teaching kind of resonate and find their, their home within us, but that he himself, through the person of the Spirit, actually dwells and lives with us. And these are two components, two sides of the same coin, when we think about union with Christ. And that union with Christ language pervades the New Testament. So uh, <clears throat> the sheer number of utterances that you will find in your New Testament are instructive on the importance of this doctrine. So two, over 200 times in Paul's letters, over two dozen times in the writings of uh, John, plenty of places in Peter, you will find expressions like in Christ or in him or in the Lord. And you will see it repeatedly. If you, and uh, Anthony Hoykema, who is a, a New Testament scholar, he, he once said, I think this is in your notes as well, a little bit further on. He says, once you start, basically, once you start looking for it, you'll find it everywhere because it's pervasive. So let me just give you a splattering. So Philippians 3.9, we're found in Christ. Romans 8.39, you, won't, you won't see these in your notes because I'm just going to throw them out. <clears throat> so you could just scribble these down. Uh, we're found in Christ, Philippians 3.9. We're preserved in Christ, Romans 8.39. We're saved and sanctified in Christ, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, 1 Corinthians 1.13. We walk in Christ, Colossians 2.6. You can't catch these up, can you? No, that's okay because I'm just throwing them out. Like these are like, these are like truth bombs that you can enjoy. Just let it land on you. And that this is the speedboat trip. All right, remember? 
<laughs> right. All right. <laughs> it is. The speedboat. And then you can slow it down and do it like half time on your podcast. And then you can. <laughs> All right. We walk in Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.6. We labor in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.58. We obey in Christ. Ephesians 6.1. We die in Christ. Romans, uh, Romans 6.11. We live in Christ, Galatians 2.20. We conquer through Christ, Romans 8.37. Just a few, all right? Another 32 times in Paul, he speaks about the very things that Christ has done that we, uh, that now become ours. So he will talk about us uh, dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, being, well, being buried with Christ, being raised with Christ, now being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's so many in Christ, with Christ language in the New Testament. Uh, I gave you a, a splattering. There's a few more that you can actually read. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 3, 27, Colossians 1, 27. My hope there is in going Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians. I'm going to reference Ephesians and Philippians a little, in a little bit and Galatians. So it gives you this, this is all the way through the New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> and once you start looking for it, you will find it everywhere. So John Murray, another Scotsman, in his book uh, called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, he's, he's massively aware of the, of how union with Christ is so pervasive in the New Testament. And he summarizes it like this. Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once for all accomplishment in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What he means by that is that the whole of our Christian lives from election to justification to sanctification to final glorification are only possible in and through Jesus Christ. And they are an expression of our union with him. <clears throat> so that's the speedboat trip. All right. So let's take the glass bottom boat trip. Anybody ever taken a glass bottom boat trip? Yeah, you could do it in the Mediterranean. It's, you know, around the little islands and you see all sorts of wonderful things that you would never see uh, before. So hopefully that illustration will stick with you. What is union with Christ, the glass bottom boat trip? And to do that, I want to just go to one verse, which I think is probably uh, the most succinct capturing of what it means to be united with Christ in the whole New Testament. And that's Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 so let me just open up Galatians chapter 2 it is what I like to call uh, it's a one verse wonder uh, it has so much truth so let me just find it go eat popcorn there it is now if you hopefully you might know a little bit about Galatians. Galatians is a book that Paul wrote to a church that had been infiltrated and affected and influenced by false teachers. These false teachers were denying the gospel. They were saying it's not about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No, no, no. In order to be saved, you need to be Jewish first. You need to become a Jew first and then become a Christian. You kind of have to supplement your faith in Christ with uh, circumcision and obedience to the law, various rituals and ceremonies and dietary laws. 
So they were saying, in order to be a Christian, you need to be a Jew first. And so Paul is resetting the, this kind of corrupted understanding that the Galatians have about the gospel. And so you find all the way through, he's referencing, you know, he's comparing the true gospel with the false gospel. He's comparing liberty with legalism, faith versus works, grace versus law, sonship versus slavery, fruit of the spirits versus the desires of the flesh. And so he's trying to reorientate them to a proper understanding of the gospel. And Galatians 2 verse 20 falls into the central part of his argument, which goes from chapter 2 verse 15 to 21. So I'm going to read that for us. I don't know whether I put this in your notes, maybe just the one verse. But let me read it. <clears throat> Paul says this, Galatians 2.15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ <clears throat> in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And this is our verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul's point here in this passage is to say that the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we enjoy, is more than just a doorway into relationship with God. It's more than just an escape route from eternal punishment to eternal paradise. It is something that brings us into new life with Christ. You know, we may wake up in the morning and we may wake up in the same house and have the same job next to the same person with the same children, with the same amount of money in our bank account, the same looks that we see back in the mirror. Um, but the reality is when we are Christians, our whole life is transformed and changed because we are united to Jesus Christ. And Paul has this three, three things in this verse that I just want to draw our attention to. The first one is that there's a, he declares a kind of a powerful fact that I have, you and I, have been crucified with Christ. That's our first component of being in Christ, that we are in Christ. So Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What that means is that Christ is our representative, okay? He is our representative. He's the representative head of his body, the church, made up of all the individual Christians like you and me. And if anybody can understand representative head, I think it's people who live in democracies like the US or the UK because we understand that our elected leaders represent us. Now, I don't want to make any political points. I'm not brave enough to do that. Uh, but just to say that usually we understand that our elected leaders represent us. It's, you know, what did Lincoln say? He said something like, by the people, for the people. Is that right? Oh, I got US history down. All right. <laughs> You have a house of representatives that you vote for. The president, he hosts, whoever he is, hosts and travels for state visits. 
you know, or has people in here. And what he does, the words that the president speaks represent the nation that he governs. Um, now, if, if politics is too close to the bone, think about sports. Uh, now, I don't know much about the Eagles, the Phillies or the 76ers, I'm afraid, but I do know everything there is to know about football, proper football, <laughs> one, where you, one where you actually use your feet. <coughs> uh, so, and, sorry? <laughs> proper football, that's right. Um, so let, let me give you an illustration. So if England, uh, so in 2026, you might not know this, but the World Cup is coming to the USA, all right? and England will win the World Cup, all right? You heard it here first. Now, imagine, right, so England have this star striker called Harry Kane. He plays right at the, right at the front. He's a great player. He's Gerard's favorite player, I think. Now, if Harry Kane scores the winning goal in the World Cup final, which means that England lift the trophy, that goal that Harry scores and the victory that that England team wins is credited to the entire team whether you were a goalkeeper defense midfield attack whether you were the manager the coach the backroom staff whether you were sat on the bench it's also credited to the fan in the stadium who's watching the game it's credited to the fan on the sofa at home it's even credited to those people that haven't even watched the game but talk about it at work on a monday morning we all we will all say we won well you can't because you are not english <laughs> But all us English people will say, we won. <laughs> but did we win? Well, no. They, effectively, Harry Kane won the game with his winning goal, but we won. That's the kind of representation of, that Union with Christ is getting at. That when we put our faith in him, we are united to Jesus in such a way, to such a depth, with, to, with such truth that so thoroughly that Paul can say that whatever happened to Jesus now is counted as if it had happened to us. So his perfect life is credited to us. His death is credited to us. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. Everything that he has done becomes something that we have done. We have been crucified with Christ. We are in him. We are hidden in him is sometimes the language that the New Testament uses. And here in verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he's basically saying the original language is something has happened in the past that has continuing and permanent effects. That Christ has been crucified in the past and that, that action and me being hidden in him now alters completely who I am and who you are. So much so that Paul can go further and say that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, don't misunderstand. He's still Paul. He's still the same man. It's not that his personality was zapped, you know, and he's just become some, you know, his internal Paulness has somehow been, you know, taken over by some mysterious force. No, what he says is the gospel brings us into union with Christ. And the transformation is so radical that we are utterly different at the core. We're not the same as we were before. So he would say in Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're united to Jesus. We're hidden in him in such a way that our lives are now interpreted through his life. 
our story enfolded into his story. And he, that becomes the defining truth of who we are. It's a powerful fact. We have been crucified with Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, as I said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's the second part of, our, uh, of what it means to be in union with Christ, that Christ is in us. And that's a powerful reality as well. It's not enough for Paul to say, you know, uh, the death of Christ has uh, put an end to my old self and now I'm Paul 2.0. No, he says that the powerful fact of I have been crucified with Christ brings about a powerful reality that Christ lives in me. Now, how does that work? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go back to Jesus in John 14 to 16 and his farewell discourse where he's preparing his disciples for his departure. Uh, you, you're probably all familiar with this. He's, he's got his disciples. It's that, you know, Thursday night or so before he's going to be uh, betrayed and crucified. And he's telling them what it's going to be like, what's going to happen as he is set to go to the cross. And he says some fa fascinating things to them, beginning in verse 1 of 14, where he says, basically, don't be troubled. Uh, a little bit later on, he then says to them, Listen, I'm going away and it's to your advantage that I go away. And, and if they were like me, I'd be there scratching my head thinking, how is this better? You know, how you're here now and you're saying it's better that you go away. I don't understand that. And so then, you, you know, you can imagine the conversation that they might be having around the dinner table. What could be better than Jesus beside us? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? In, in John 14, verses 16 to 18, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And so you can see, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, the disciples' brains, they were pretty, you know, slow to catch on. But you can imagine later on them processing it all and thinking, okay, he said he was going away and it was to our advantage that he was going away. Why would it be to our advantage? Because he's going to send another just like him. But that other is not going to be Jesus beside us. It's going to be Jesus in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. So Sinclair Ferguson says, having the spirit is the equivalent. Indeed, it's the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. So back to verse 20 of Galatians, it, you could read it in these words, Paul, Paul basically saying, I no longer have my, a life of my own. The life I have now is the life that God puts into me through the Spirit. I'm in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm in him, but now he is in me too. He's in me. Our hearts that were once under the dominion of sin have now been freed from that. Freed from the penalty and the power of sin, the old sinful me has been crucified with Christ and, and there is new life within me that God puts there by his spirit. Think about it this way. Uh, Batman is a superhero who is really only a superhero because he, his alter ego, Bruce Wayne, is a rich guy who can afford to build fancy cars and gadgets and 
costumes or uniforms or whatever you want to call it, you know. So Bruce Wayne fights crime on the basis of, he's a superhero on the basis of his external possessions, if you like, the things that he puts, he, he wears, the things that he has uh, to use, okay? But think about Captain America, all right? Think about the origin story of Captain America. He was, uh, his name, his real name is Steve Rogers. He was a five foot, four inch, uh, 90 pound weakling, all right? Who then gets injected with a serum that completely changes his makeup, that completely alters him from the inside out. And so he emerges significantly taller and stronger and more muscular, and now has a power accessible to him from the inside with which to become a superhero. And I think Union with Christ makes us more like Captain America than it does Batman, all right? That's, illustrations will break down very quickly. I get that, but try, try and track with me, all right? What we have in union with Christ is we, have, we are changed from the inside out. That God has given us himself in the person of his spirit so that we have this power within ourselves to live a life of faith, not to become superheroes. Our whole identity is now changed and established and defined and dominated and governed by our union with Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, 27, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now there is a, there's powerful purpose in this, that our union with Christ, it changes us so that our motivations and our desires and our goals and our ambitions are now shaped by Christ. We're shaped by his goals and his motivations and his sacrifice. We want to reflect his grace to others. We want to bring him glory. And we have a new power within us to be able to live a life of faith, to be able to pursue a life of holiness, to be able to respond to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So union with Christ, these two elements, we're in Christ and Christ is in us. These two things together that the Bible teaches are supposed to be an anchor for our holiness, an anchor for our holiness, all right? We are in Christ. Sometimes the language of the Bible will describe it that our sanctification, our holiness has already been completed. It's already been finished. The Bible, in some places you read it, will sound like it's holiness. It's not something that we're to achieve, but something that we receive. And that's true. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus. So there it is. It, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification or holiness, and redemption. That sounds like that's something we already experienced, we have already received. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hebrews 10, 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that language that you find there is, is not, uh, oh, I, I'm not going to Nathan's class next week because he's completely misled us. 
He's talking about pursuing holiness and now he's telling us that we've received holiness. No, what, what the, these verses are getting at is what the old theologians used to call definitive sanctification. This idea that uh, definitive sanctification involves a once-for-all act whereby God marks us out and sets us apart as his people. And he frees us by a decisive and radical breaking of sin's power to live a life of faith. And he makes us saints. He declares us to be saints united to Jesus Christ. He transfers us from the sphere of sin to the sphere of God's kingdom. That they, they called it definitive sanctification. It was, a, it was a holiness that we received. Do you remember last week we talked about the, the two primary meanings of holiness and a primary meaning being set apart and, and kind of distinct and different? That's what definitive sanctification is getting at. When we respond in faith to Christ, God sets us apart as his people. And we are declared to be holy and then we're also called to be holy, to kind of close the gap between the two. So you can see uh, just uh, a paragraph from the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith that just lays that out there, where, where it says, All, as the all-sufficient Saviour, Christ sanctifies his people, cleansing them from the impurity of sin, setting them apart for God and his service, and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit breaks their bondage to sin and Satan and raises them to new life, enabling believers to put sin to death and grow in likeness to Christ. Sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. And we'll, we can cover that in some questions, but union with Christ is the anchor of our holiness. It means that when we think about our pursuit of holiness as individuals, we are building upon a firm and steady foundation. We are anchored to Jesus Christ. Our position, our identity before God is secure and unshakable. We are already seen by him as holy because of our connection to Jesus Christ. So it's an anchor for us, just like an anchor steadies a storm, uh, steadies a ship in stormy waters. Our union with Christ stabilizes us and secures us and sustains us. It, it keeps us from drifting in our journey towards holiness, especially in the face of life's challenges and temptations. We are united to him and our holiness, in one sense, has already been achieved, which should give us confidence that the holiness that we pursue will not fall with our failures or rise with our successes. That it's not just like, well, today I feel holy because I'm having a great day, but tomorrow when I have a bad day, I'm a million miles from God. No, our union with Christ stabilizes and sustains us and helps us to see that any pursuit of holiness that we make is, is not just a fragile endeavor uh, dependent on our own efforts, but it's secured in Christ himself. And as, as he says in John 10, 28, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. So union with Christ is, a, is an anchor for our holiness. Wish we had more time to get into that. But also union with Christ is the engine for our holiness. The definitive gift of holiness that we receive from Christ doesn't nullify the commands to pursue holiness. 
So we still have those commands in the scriptures, 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 3, Romans chapter 12, be holy as I am holy, you know, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, be transformed in your minds, don't be conformed to this world. The gospel invites us into new life with Christ and, and in doing so gives us a new heart, new desires, new motivations, new dispositions to live for Jesus. It gives us the power to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. This union with Christ is the engine which drives or should drive our pursuit of holiness. This ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus is not dependent on our meager efforts. Holiness is not a self-improvement progress. It is a transformational progress that, uh, process that as we abide in Christ, as we are near to him, as we uh, commune with him in our union with him, his character and his attributes and his will is gradually formed in us. That he is the source of our relationship. Uh, he, the relationship with him is the source of our holiness. We have him living within us. The same Christ who overcame every temptation that was put before him, the same Jesus that was perfectly obedient to the Father, the same Jesus who uh, was raised to resurrection life in resurrection power, he now lives within us. That's remarkable, I think. That's, and I think we need to realise the resources that we carry around within us. We need to realise that we, are, we don't go alone into whatever we face every day. Jesus is with us. We have full access to draw on the power of God to fight sin and temptation and live a holy life. Paul says it like this. Uh, we're running out of time, so uh, let me just draw your attention to Philippians chapter 3. You know the passage. Paul here in the early part of Philippians chapter 3 is recounting reasons for why he could uh, be proud he, he's got great religious credentials he is he he is like you know he would be in the top gun kind of like you know flight school for pharisees you know he is he has re impressive religious credentials that he could be proud of but he says compared to knowing christ they are they are dung they are worthless so we know that but then he says in verse 12, uh, well, he says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3 that he, his desire for his life is that he might share in the sufferings of Christ and share in his resurrection life and know Christ in a deeper, more intimate way. But then he says in verse 12, listen, don't, don't mistake me. I'm still Paul. You know, I still have all of these sins and temptations that I'm battling. But the gap that he feels, if you like, between, oh, I want to know Christ and I want to see him and I want to experience him and I want to have deeper communion with him and understand him better and love him more. But here I am down here struggling with temptation and sin. That gap between the two, it doesn't scare Paul or drive him to sort of a passivity. What it does is that he, it, it drives him forward. You know, that the, the, his union with Christ, his idea that this, there is surpassing wealth in knowing Jesus Christ above all my religious credentials. There is so much wonder in knowing Jesus Christ 
I'm way down here, he's way up there, but oh my, he says, I strive with everything that I have to, to lay hold of Christ who has already laid hold of me. And that gap that he feels drives him forward. The, his union with Christ, his, I, the idea that oh, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, it, it pulls him up. It causes him to strive, to, it propels him forward, whatever language or image you want to use. It's the engine that drives him towards holiness. And may it be for us too. I'm running out of time. So union with Christ on a daily basis. I mean, it gives us new identity. And all that, all I mean by that is we're no longer defined by our old nature. We are new creations. Jesus lives within us. We have died to sin. We have risen to new life with Christ. That should have a defining uh, influence on our lives that we are not our own we are now hidden in Christ we have access to God's grace that means we can draw near to his throne with confidence knowing that we will find mercy and grace to help us in time of need Hebrews 4 16 we have a renewed mindset that as we renew our minds through the word of God our, our motivations and our desires will be changed to want to please him and live for him in a way that honors him and we have the spirit at work within us. We have all of the resources of the storehouse of God within us. So our holiness, our pursuit of holiness is not left to us. We have the all-powerful, merciful, loving, perfect, perfectly obedient Christ who dwells within us through the spirit. So that he has freed us from the power of sin and he empowers us to then be able to say no to ungodliness and yes to self-control, uprightness and godliness. So much more that could be said, but let me finish with this. Union with Christ is so invisible and intangible that we really need to just, we need help to comprehend it. And so both Jesus and Paul pray that we would understand it. And I want to pray those prayers for us now. So let me pray for us. In John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask for these alone or only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, we thank you that we are in Christ. We thank you that you love us like you love your own Son. We thank you that whatever is true of Jesus in your eyes is now true of us. And we thank you that all, belong, all that belongs to the Son, he now shares with us, those who are united to him in faith. May we know this more deeply, I pray. For this reason, we bow our knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of your mercy, you would grant to us strength and power through the Holy Spirit 
within us so that we would know and experience and enjoy Christ dwelling in our hearts and that we would be rooted and grounded in love and that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power, your power at work within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.